Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're a regular, welcome back. If you're new, then you know that it's Wednesday. It's Noise Nostalgia podcast time, which means the bear has gone back to nursery. The pot of Yorkshire is on the go and we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we haphazardly label the noughties and to the football of its time. And it's been a long, long time since I said that opening introduction. This is the Noughties Nostalgia podcast, episode 46 after the seven or eight week break there for the European Championships. What have we got for you today? Well, we have got the worst ever summer transfers and not to um, link the two, but Robbie Keane is in there as well. Some people might have got a bit too annoyed that I put Robbie Keane's face to uh, a question on Twitter there this week, but there we go. Let's get stuck in to today's show. So to discuss the worst ever summer transfers in the history of football or the Premier League, really as most of our suggestions have come from, we have to determine what makes a bad transfer. So first and foremost, obviously, we've got bad performances, which of course, be it any price you pay for a footballer, if they turn out bad performances, say for example, if they're below 6.7 for the season on Football Manager, that's when you get rid, unless they're 17 to 22 probably, then you were. Uh, Stay the course with them anyway. So, second point, big price. So, of course, we've got a couple here that we're going to mention. But say if you spend £70 million on what's supposed to be one of your key players, he flops, doesn't come up with the goods, doesn't play to the standards that you believe £70 million is, then potentially that's a bad transfer as well. And our third and final point, unfulfilled potential. Some may say... Paul Pogba fits into all three of these categories. Unfulfilled potential is probably the more likely from a uh, 
from an objective point of view there, they might have been un- likely unfulfilled his potential, whether or not that's his teammates, whether or not that's him. But Manchester United fans will be glad to know we didn't have a suggestion for Paul Pogba in this list. We have got probably a team or so we can make up. I don't think we've got a goalkeeper there. So, oh no, we do have a goalkeeper. So we could probably build an 11 out of this. So starting off, James FF, he writes in, he says, El Hadj Juf of Liverpool. James being a big Liverpool, Liverpool fan, probably didn't like the two or three years Juf spent with uh, Liverpool. And of course, we all remember when Juf came, it was in a time where Liverpool were really picking up anybody good from the 2002 World Cup. Juf's Senegalese teammates, Alif Jao also came in. Meanwhile, Alou Diara and Bruno Cheru came in. 18.5 million spent. All four transfers were gone by the time Liverpool won the Champions League in 2005 under Rafael Benitez, permanently out on loan because Juve spent that season out on loan. And um, his spell in England is probably more well-known for Neil Warnock, calling him a sewer rat at one point. So that, I think that was when he was at Bolton. He said he's nothing higher than a sewer rat. So that uh, says it all about the man, really. Um so that shows he felt some way short of expectation that he's even at Bolton and uh, obviously being called a sewer rat by Neil Warnock isn't a positive um, part of the uh, career. And uh, he came off the back of fairly nomadic spell in France. So he's played at the likes of Sochaux, Rennes, Lons in the space of four years. And in his time at Liverpool, scored just three Premier League goals, 28 in total. And this puts him joint 252nd in the Premier League scorers list alongside the legends that are Milan Barros, John Barnes, Ross Barkley and Paul Pogba amongst others, of course. And he is joint 268th for appearances alongside Francis Benali, which is an absolute staggering statistic, really, considering that Benali was the starting fullback for Southampton for seemingly ages. Um, Stefan Honcho, John Joe Shelby, Andros Townsend and Noel Whelan can also be in his company there in the uh, Premier League of all time. And he would net just six times in 79 matches for Liverpool. And there's a centre forward. That is, of course... Shocking statistics there from the Senegalese. And once Rafa Benitez got hold of him when he came to the club in the summer of 2004, of course, he shipped him out off on loan to Bolton. And wouldn't you know it, 10 months later, Liverpool have got the Champions League for a fifth time. But it wasn't all bad. Uh, nearly called him Mami Biram Juf, the, the former Manchester United legend. El Hadj Juf, he did win a League Cup in his time, being in the 2003 final against Manchester United. Played the majority of that game, got subbed off in the 90th minute, but he does have a League Cup winner's medal to uh, end his career off on, which is uh, good. And on the run to the tournament, actually, tournament final, he did score two pretty vital goals on the way, an equaliser against Ipswich in the fourth round and an equaliser against Sheffield United, which took... Um, in the second leg that is in the semi-final, which took um, the game to extra time. So without that Juve goal, um, Manchester United would have won the League Cup unless Sheffield United sprung a surprise in the final, of course, which is fairly unlikely, but there we are. In his loan season, Juve's loan season at Bolton, nine goals and him a permanent move, um, which meant three more years contracted up in the northwest. And from nine goals in one season, became 15 in three seasons. Spent half a year at Sunderland, never got off the ground really, I can't really seem to recall that spell at all. Uh, two years at Blackburn, scored four goals there in 62 games and uh, somehow grabbed an SPL title in a six-month loan spell with Rangers, which is probably more well for, well known for him having a square go with uh, Scott Brown there in the uh, 
old firm Derby, and that uh, spell spelled the end of his time at the top tier as a footballer, really. Um, he then dropped down to the Championship with Doncaster, and then Leeds United, probably more well-known for spitting at fans, spitting at opponents, being called a sewer rat, as we said, fighting in old firm derbies, fighting in nightclubs, going AWOL on pre-season tours. And um, the controversies section of his Wikipedia is probably, inarguably really, more entertaining than his career. And uh, a very good suggestion there from James. Our next suggestion coming from both Radio Techers and at Walks Lulu it is the almighty Park Chu Young. Now, if you cast your minds back to late August 2011, Arsenal had just been absolutely paggered 8-2 in the Premier League by Manchester United. Arsene Wenger had a bit of a wobble on. Um, this was around the time where they would point-blank refuse to spend any money of any real note. Right, Probably right up until, must have been 2013 when Mesut Ozil came in for 40 or so million pounds. Obviously, the Emirates building took a heavy toll on Arsenal's transfer policy. And here we are, the shining light in Arsenal's transfer policy, Park Chu Young. He was given number nine in the uh, mad flurry of four signings in two days that um, Wenger made. Andre Santos, more on him later, came in. Uh, Mikel Arteta and Per Mertesacker also were signed in the space of 24 hours, which two became legends, I wonder. So Park Chu Young played in two Champions League dead rubbers, really, um, a group stage match when Arsenal were already qualified and a game against AC Milan where they were 4-0 down, chasing that fourth goal and it was never looking likely, really. Also played in three League Cup games, scoring against Bolton Wanderers, so that's something to uh, write home about and that was his only goal for Arsenal. <laughs> Made his Premier League debut some way into his career, some six months in played eight minutes of Premier League football at Arsenal, was given the number 30 the season after, which says a lot about uh, his first season at the club. Sent out on loan, didn't impress at Celta Vigo, didn't impress at Watford, which I cannot remember that for the life in me. Then he went to Saudi Arabia and then returned home to FC Seoul, where he started his career. He's got an impressive 24 goals in 68 games for South Korea, though, for the national team, and did play a, uh, at a couple of World Cups for his national team. So that's... Uh, Something that will live a lot longer in the memory than his time in England at Arsenal. And then those two spectacular games for Watford in the league. So speaking of poor Arsenal signs, Radio Techers, he must hate Arsenal because he's suggesting a couple of Arsenal players here, or ex-Arsenal players, Andre Santos. And who remembers this jobber? Seven million euros was the fee from Fernabachi. And uh, according to my notes, he was a left back. Who knows? Um, he didn't particularly do much of any note, really. He was mainly cover for Kieran Gibbs, which tells you all you really need to know about Andre Santos here. Played 33 times for Arsenal, though, so a fair chunk of time. majority of them will probably have been substitute appearances. And is the beginning of the end of his time in North London came <laughs> when uh, he swapped shirts at half-time with Robin Van Persie when he was at Manchester United. That was... Robin Van Persie's first game against Arsenal in November of 2012, it would have been, I think. And um, it got more publicity for that amongst Arsenal fans and his football, which, of course, says a lot about Andre Santos as a player and as a person. So let's move on to a more more recent more recent um, suggestion here. Radio Techers again coming in strong. Kepa Aretha Balaga. Panagiotis Sidaris also suggested Kepa Aretha Balaga as well. Um... 
I was thinking it's a little harsh, but it's come up again today. I'm recording this the day before this goes out on the Tuesday, uh, where Kepa's finally apologised to Maurizio Sarri about um, about refusing to come off the pitch in the League Cup final. And uh, that's probably the thing that he'll be remembered for at Chelsea, which is, it kind of makes it probably not harsh in the grand scheme of things, doesn't it? Um, one of our indicators is, of course, the price tag. And at £73 million, Kepa's outlay... It's not a very good return for what is brought to the Chelsea team, I don't think. Obviously, prices, as we know, coming from Athletic Bilbao with their transfer policy, it does skyrocket the transfers. We see Ander Herrera came in for £30 million for Manchester United in 2014. Um, prices coming from Athletic Bilbao, because they only signed Basque country uh, players, the transfers to get players like that out of Bilbao are notoriously very high, but Jesus Christ, seventy-three million pounds is a lot of money. Um, he's dipped in and out of the number one shirt for Chelsea and for his national team. Of course, Spain didn't uh, play any football at Euro two thousand and twenty recently. He's played seventy-six Premier League games in three years, which sounds good, but he's a goalkeeper. He should probably be playing around hundred if he is the number one choice. You know, barring injuries, of course. And now, Edouard Mendy is in the number one jersey Chelsea seemingly on the lookout for another goalkeeper Andrea Onana of the, as they seem to have been doing for about 18 months now um, it came very quickly after after Kepa signed that uh, Chelsea realised that they need another goalkeeper um, Thomas Tuchel um, seems to want to give him a bit more of a chance than Frank Lampard has done however and like I say he's probably going to be more well known for refusing to come off in the League Cup final at the start, I was thinking more they could be parallels with um, David De Gea. He came in, was kind of lean, kind of uh, fragile in goal for Manchester United. Uh, 2011, he signed from Atletico Madrid. And I thought there could potentially be parallels there, but um, Kepa hasn't really kicked on like David De Gea did. And he's likely to leave soon or play second fiddle to Eduard Mendy or become a cup goalkeeper. And as I... Uh, Set to my uh, recording up this uh, afternoon, I'd noticed that Chelsea have signed Bettinelli from Fulham on a free. So where does that put Kepa? Is he now third choice? Is he fourth choice? Who knows? But uh, certainly won't be giving Chelsea fans a lot of confidence if he starts um, the season off as their number one. James Williams suggests Cuco Martina for Everton. And to be honest, I do not remember this at all. I remember him playing for Southampton. Um, I think he scored a decent goal against Arsenal uh, from fair distance. I think Southampton might have won that game, but this is all abandoned memories of a long time ago. <laughs> um, he was released within two years by the Saints and didn't last too much longer with the Toffees either. And typically it was Ronald Koeman who'd signed him on the South Coast, signed him also for Everton at Goodison Park there as well. He's played 21 league games for Everton, but was quickly shipped out on loan to uh, Stoke City, back to Eredivisie, and didn't play in the 2019-20 season, um, finally under Carlo Ancelotti at Goodison Park, and has been released, and that was his last club. He's now been without a club for a year now, as he drops off the face of the earth. Is it because of COVID, financial restrictions? Who knows? Um, but hopefully Cuco Martina, the first ever man of Curaçao nationality to score a goal in the Premier League. So there's something. Um, he only scored one goal and it was against Arsenal. Who knows? He smacks as though he probably will end up at a championship club or back in the Netherlands where a lot of Curaçaoan players end up, of course. 
one player I do know about is a suggestion made by at Bladesam1983, Ali Dyer, who can forget him, even if you weren't around, which I wasn't at the time. We all know about the folklore. We all know about the lore of this man. So Southampton get a call from George Weyer, the uh, recently proclaimed Ballon d'Or winner, George Weyer. Apparently his cousin wants to sign for Southampton out of the blue, Graham Souness, believing that he's onto a winner. He uh, quickly snaps him up. Uh, Southampton was surely going to rocket up the league here. European football, maybe a league title if Ali Dyer's got even a shred of the ability of George Weyer. Hopefully the talent has been produced by osmosis, (laughs) who knows. Uh, But no, Ali Dyer wasn't George Weyer's cousin, nor was he any good at football, really. Um, Snuck out of drills, snuck out of training sessions, even dodged a reserve game against Arsenal because it were waterlogged. And then suddenly he's plucked and dropped straight into the substitutes bench of a Premier League game. His previous match before this was a match for Blythe Spartans, <laughs> which is phenomenal, really. Um, he comes on for an injured Matthew Letizia against Leeds, gets subbed off late on, gets released two weeks later. Signs for Gateshead, scores on his debut, plays for Spennymore Town, I think, Town. It's from around here, I should know that. Um, plays eight games for Gateshead, never, never really seen much of again. And apparently he's got degrees in business studies in Newcastle and then uh, San Francisco in his master's degree and he was listed by the Times newspaper as the worst transfer of all time and if it had cost a, if it had cost any money I'd have probably put him there um, I think these are bigger wastes of money this was this was harmless really wasn't it I, I'm sure the scoreline was 3-2 I don't know if Southampton won or they lost regardless it's um, a funny story for Graham Soonest now I'm sure he gives a chuckle to himself because he's such a mild-mannered gentleman isn't he Podfather Mag says Danny Drinkwater. Now I assume this is for Chelsea rather than Leicester because obviously with Leicester he ascended to hero status. For Chelsea, less so. <laughs> Manchester United youth prospect, of course, lone hero, plays for played for Huddersfield. I think he must have gone out to Belgium during that time where Man United had an affiliation with uh, with Royal Antwerp and he left Manchester United for Leicester City in 2012, was quickly nominated for Championship Player of the Year, didn't win it unfortunately. That being when uh, Leicester went up in the 2013-14 season. Helped them stay up, played 23 games. I think Esteban Cambiasso was probably ahead of him at that point. Cambiasso, as we know, only stayed for one season, of course. His successor was N'Golo Kante. And then Drinkwater was his midfield partner. Played all but three Premier League games the following season, of course, as Leicester won the Premier League in 2016. Couldn't replicate that sort of form without N'Golo Kante to the side of him. Kante, of course, won the... Premier League back-to-back this time with Chelsea in 2017 but he would rejoin his uh, midfield pal at Chelsea and um, he still plays for Chelsea Um, has he scaled to the heights of a club legend has he won the Champions League with Chelsea no he's played 23 times in four years he's gone to Burnley he's gone to Villa he's gone to a Turkish club that I'm not even going to hazard a guess as how I'm going to pronounce that um, his most recent Chelsea game was in the Papa John's Trophy for the under-23s. And recently, he's probably more well-known at Chelsea for fighting youth players in reserve games, fighting in nightclubs, drink driving, these sorts of things. And um, safe to say when his contract's up next summer, I think he might be out of the door at Chelsea. But uh, who knows, maybe Thomas Tuchel might turn him into might turn him into Claude Makalele, who knows? And another suggestion from Podfather Mag's a big Chelsea fan here, of course. <laughs> Only joking. 
Adrian Mutu, another Chelsea bad boy. Uh, this time, this was in the summer of 2003, which meant no FFP, and it meant Roman Abramovich dipping his hands into his pockets and splurging continuously throughout the summer. From a Manchester United fan's point of view, this was terrifying. I'm sure from a neutral point of view, it was very exciting. Um, Chelsea, however, though, in the summer of 2003, hadn't quite cottoned on to a transfer strategy. It was a bit more a uh, scattergunned approach, wasn't it, really? They just signed anything that had a heartbeat. Uh, before Didier Drogba, there was the Romanian Adrian Mutu. Somewhat of a success in his native Rome, and then in Italy, to be fair, as well. He would spend just a year in London actually playing for the club. Got off to a Scorcher, I seem to remember, in that beautiful uh, Fly Emirates kit. It would have been Fly Emirates then, wouldn't it? Kit with a nice little white trim. Um, got off to a great season, 2003-04 season. Mourinho came in. Mutu's form tanks. He accuses Adrian Mutu about lying about an injury with his national team. Never used him. Sniffed his way out of the door, of course. Had a seven-month ban for cocaine use until May 2005. Went to Juventus in and amongst that ban whilst he was suspended and ultimately, because of the breach of contract, has had to pay Chelsea 17.1 million euros in compensation, a case which rumbled on until 2018. He would, of course, go on to win two Serie A at Juventus, two Serie A that were quickly expunged due to Calciopoli. So it's been a fantastic career for Mutu, really. <laughs> Moving on to another bitter contract dispute, Ricky Alvarez, again suggested by Podfather Mags. This was a loan obligation turned utterly sour. A blink and you miss it spell in the northeast. that, to be fair, it sort of vaguely rings a bell 2014-ish, just come off the back of being picked for Argentina in 2014 World Cup. Who knows if he played at that tournament? I certainly can't remember him. Um, the obligation to buy Alvarez was because Sunderland had stayed up, played only 13 games. Sunderland didn't want to pay his parent club into Milan because of the injury record. Sunderland claimed that his underlying left knee problems, which would have allowed them an out out of the contract, um, caused his right knee injury because of the distribution of weight, you must imagine. And um, Cass deemed in 2017 that Sunderland had to pay and they were in the wrong. And this was finally settled in August 2019, with Sunderland now in League One finally being relegated. But Alvarez claimed for loss of earnings, and if he wins that battle on appeal, Sunderland will have had to fork out £20 million overall for a player who played 13 games. And isn't that just typical Sunderland, really, at this stage in the game? Whack that on the old Netflix documentary. Chat Grapple and Cheap Pops podcast recommend. They suggest Francis Jeffers, and he was kind of like the 2000s punchline, wasn't he, really? He gained the tag Fox in the box. He signed for Arsenal. For £10 million off the back of a good four years at Everton. And I try to remember his goals, all I can remember him. He's squaring up to Sander Westerveld in the Liverpool Merseyside derby there. Um, he lasted just three years at Highbury. He's fantastic on Championship Manager 2001 or two there. So swings and roundabouts, really. Uh, he ended up scoring just eight goals for Arsenal. He was deemed to be the future of England's front line with Michael Owen. Seems funny to think about now, but he never truly lived up to the hype. Hard to get into the squad, admittedly, when you've got the likes of Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp, when they were in the squad with him. His Premier League career was over in 2006, though, and he had scored 25 Premier League goals, three less than El Hadj Juf, um, and then saw his career out in places like Motherwell, Australia, Malta, and finally, Accrington Stanley. The Minig Bruce crew suggests Nicola Pepe, another contemporary. 
another contemporary suggestion there. And again, it's harsh to call this the worst. I think it lands in the popular Twitter consensus like uh, Kepper Ithabalaga. I think he's got a bit more potential about him. He should a bit more than Kepper. We all know he's vastly overpriced, so that obviously has to come into play. And that's probably why he's not as seen as good, really. If he was, if he had the £15 million price tag around his neck, like Dan James, for example, I don't think he'd get lauded uh, with all the criticism that he does. He's a decent player. He's just not £70 million, That's not his fault, really. And I think he will, as uh, if he stays with Arsenal, and if he gets given a couple more seasons, he will be better in an Arsenal shirt. You've got to expect, surely. But from one suggestion to the other end of the scale, Shane Hetherington suggests Bosco Balaban and um, a huge, huge flop. One of the first names that springs to my mind, at least. Performed well in Croatia, um, but for Aston Villa, started just twice in two and a half years. I think he got eight overall games in a Aston Villa shirt with that lovely NTL kit in the 2001-2 season. Again, like Francis Jeffers, fantastic on champ manager, uh, 2001-2. He was released midway through the 2003-4 season. That's when you know you've got a bad relationship with your club. So you met Urza last year. Um, He scored 15 in 24 Dinamo Zagreb games in a loan spell in the middle of this. So it goes to... It's really bizarre how he couldn't score a single goal for Villa. He would then say, after being listed as one of the worst signings ever, um, he pinned the blame on the management, the selection issues there, when he wasn't really given a chance. And to be fair, eight games in two and a half years, it's never really got off the ground. Considering that £6 million to Aston Villa in 2001 was considered a lot of money to not then play him and not try and get him into form, especially when you've got the likes of Juan Pablo Angel, who you do give a lot of chances to. Fair enough, Balaban might have not been in that league, probably wouldn't have been in that league, but he wasn't given the same, wasn't afforded the same opportunities as, as the likes of Juan Pablo Angel. Matty Mack comes in with Alberto Aquilani, and these truly were the dark days of Liverpool FC. It was a summer where they'd lost Xabi Alonso to Real Madrid for thirty million, and for just over half that price, they signed Alberto Aquilani. He's twenty-five, but central midfielder with tons of potential. Fantastic, uh, fantastic playmaker for Roma. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? Well, he got his first start in December two thousand and nine, and when he got on the pitch, when he wasn't, f- when he was three of injury, he was okay. He got a few assists, few man of the matches, etc. But the problem for him really was that he was rarely, rarely fit. And another problem was Rafael Benitez, who signed him, of course, was out at the end of the first season. Obviously, Liverpool would go through the administration problems. Hodgson shipped him out on loan to get rid of the wages. Um, Finally left Liverpool in 2012, where Brendan Rodgers would have been manager, I think. And uh, he floated around the likes of Italy, Portugal and Spain before retiring in 2018. And my personal favourite comes from Hazard Tweets 10, Bebe, and <laughs> just simply Bebe. As Hazard states, it was an extortionate fee. Fair enough, it's £7 million, but for what Bebe put into the club, £7 million is still extortionate. For someone who Sir Alex Ferguson even admitted that he'd never seen to seen playing, Carlos Queros was sold a lie, and in turn sold that lie to Alex Ferguson. His first game was off the bench against the mighty Scunthorpe United in a in a, a League Cup game. His first uh, first uh, real thing of note in a United show was blazing a shot almost out of the stadium. So a sign of things to come, perhaps. 
Never really played too many games. Would even survive Ferguson at United. <laughs> would quickly leave after a few after a few loan spells in Portugal and ended up lasting around four years or so in the end. And um, Hazard said that he was supposed to be the next Ronaldo or Nani. I'm not really sure about that one. It's just one of them signs where Ferguson would look an absolute genius if it came off. And £7 million when it was around the time where after the sale of Ronaldo where United weren't spending huge money as um, they had done before and definitely have done since after his retirement. They weren't really spending too much money. They were rather looking for young bargains like after this you'd see De Gea, Jones, Smalling would come in. These Ashley Young, all players that weren't necessarily, they were all sub £20 million, um, for one of the biggest clubs in world really these small signs and Bebe at £7 million a drop in the ocean but let's be fair a pretty shocking drop in the ocean at that at replicant l10 also says no chance it was Robbie Keane which I said earlier caught a bit of flack for mentioning or putting Robbie Keane's face to this question but speaking of Robbie Keane we'll be talking about him after this short short break so welcome back what do Nicholas and Elka, Dwight York, Stephen Gerrard, Jamie Vardy, Ian Wright, Romelu Lukaku, Dion Dublin, Emil Heskey, Ryan Giggs, Peter Crouch, Paul Scholes, Didier Drogba, Matt Letizia and Darren Bent all have in common? Well, they're all members of the 100 club in the Premier League for goal scorers, of course, but they all have less goals than Robbie Keane. 126 goals in 349 Premier League matches. Keane got 12 in Coventry, 13 in Leeds, 93 in London, 91 with Spurs and 2 with West Ham. Shout out to anyone who remembers his spell at West Ham. Uh, three in Birmingham with Aston Villa again. Who remembers that? And five in Liverpool for Liverpool, of course. So I asked, where was he playing when you started following football? James Williams says Spurs. Hopeless Wanderer podcast says Wolves. Matty Mack says Dirty Leeds. And at Brisbane Stoke, he says Robbie Keane wasn't even born when I started watching. Lucky man. So for me, it must have been Wolves when I started following football. But I first remember him at... Coventry in a Coventry shirt for that 1999-2000 season. Signed for £6 million, which was at the time a British record fee for a teenager. And he had a very good first season at Highfield Road. Fond memories of him and that Coventry team, really, personally. Uh, you've got Chippo, you've got Mustafa Hadji, Gary McAllister, Richard Shaw, John Aloisi, Marcus Hedman in goal as well. It was a fantastic time. And on FIFA 2001, I always picked Coventry. You might have seen there uh, when I did the review there of that game a couple of uh, months back now I stuck with Coventry because I loved that uh, Chippo Hadji axis on the wings Gary McAllister playmaking of course Robbie Keane sticking the goals in there as well before the days of Keane's uh, travails in America and India Keane did spend a few a few months really a year or so outside of the British Isles um, professionally Inter Milan came calling but ultimately only played six Serie A games. It was shipped out after Marco Daldelli succeeded Marcelo Lippi after uh, <laughs> Inter Milan's ill-fated Champions League spell where they were knocked out out of the qualifiers by Helsingborgs. Halfway through the season, a Leeds United loan was uh, then turned permanent in the summer afterwards and the heady old days of Peter Ridsdale bank loans and being on the verge of bankruptcy for the West Yorkshire club. Those were the times. Robbie Keane, however, would not take part in Leeds' only Champions League 
campaign of the 21st century. Cup tied in Europe, of course, with that qualifier against Helsingborg, where they lost 1-0 on aggregate. So unfortunately, missed Leeds' run to the semi-final that year. By the time that was made permanent, the deal, <laughs> Leeds never returned to the Champions League again. In fact, Robbie Keane never played in the Champions League proper until his ill-fated spell at Liverpool. His only game before 2008 was in that losing effort against Helsingborgs in the qualification. But between that, Keane's sides either failed to qualify for the Champions League, but got achingly close in the form of Leeds United in the early 2000s. And then when Keane left Leeds for Spurs, Spurs were just being Spurs, either mid-table or consistently falling short. And then Keane's, amongst this time really, Keane's goal-scoring form never truly wavered. You got 107 goals in 254 games in a Spurs shirt, in the first spell at least. Um, the goal that seems to ring true in my mind was that goal against Blackburn where he takes it from a throw-in, swivels and takes it, clips it over a defender, another touch to uh, up and the angle up a bit and then a lovely volley. And then what followed is probably more memorable than the regularity of his goal, even though he's a consistent goal scorer, the trademark cartwheel, the gun tote in the roly-poly celebration, usually at White Hart Lane was just... A thing of beauty, really. And even in those six months at Liverpool, which is what earned him at that picture, that caption alongside the question that I asked for your suggestions of the worst transfer ever in a Liverpool shirt, even despite the uh, maligned six months at Liverpool, he did score a fantastic goal against Arsenal that lives long in the memory. A stunning half volley over the shoulder in a 1-1 draw, which is superb. And in this time, he got his he finally got his Champions League goal as well. Um, second in a win against PSV, and I think he scored against Atletico Madrid in a draw as well. Um, these were in the days where Liverpool weren't really challenging in, in Europe, and that would be, I think, one of Liverpool's last Champions League campaigns before the Brendan Rodgers year, and of course, since Jurgen Klopp's took charge. And it might not have worked out for Keane at Liverpool, a boyhood club of his, which... Uh, quickly became a meme as he switched from club to club to club and uh, stated that they were all boyhood clubs. Celtic was one, Wolves Villa was another one as well. And uh, when he returned to Spurs after those six months, he scored seven in 28 uh, with Liverpool. He never really returned to the scoring heights of double figures in uh, England. He um, returned to Spurs and he was never really the key player as he was in days prior. Before he was in a starting partnership with either Jermaine Defoe or Freddie Canute, now he was coming on for the likes of Peter Crouch, Roman Pavlyuchenko, and now become a bit part player. Even for the runs to the uh, Champions League quarterfinals in the 2010-11 season, he wouldn't even be there for the knockout stage. You seem to remember Spurs beat AC Milan back in the day. They got to the quarterfinals, lost to Real Madrid, of course. When that was all going on, Robbie Keane was at West Ham on loan, uh, just as he did the prior January to Celtic, so missed out on Spurs' Champions League qualification when they got it on the second-to-last day against Man City at the Etihad. Uh, Celtic, of course, another big boyhood club of his. And uh, King would only score double figures in Scotland and America. He had fairly lengthy spell in LA Galaxy after the 2007-08 season. That was the final season where Keane got double figures. But he should be remembered as one of the more consistent forwards of his generation in the Premier League arguably the one of the more important players that Ireland have ever had on the international stage. He remains their top goal scorer. He remains their highest appearance holder. Turned out 146 times for the boys in green, scored 68. Three of those came in the summer of 2002, the 2002 World Cup. 
most memorable of which, of course, a late equaliser against Germany. And those were his only three tournament goals. May have had a couple more if it wasn't for Thierry Henry as well. Keane scoring six in qualification for that World Cup in South Africa, but of course they were undone by that handball in the playoffs. And of course, by the time of Euro 2012, Keane wouldn't be in the goals there either. And he ended up only playing in, would have been two tournaments for Ireland, unfortunately. Next week, we'll be looking at another centre-forward and we'll be profiling a fantastic team. Um, it's particularly towards the back end of the 2000s because we're going to be looking at Ruud van Nistelrooy, a superb goalscorer for Manchester United, Real Madrid, PSV and others, Hamburg. And we're going to be looking at Fulham, chartering their rise to the Premier League in 2001 and ending up with the Europa League final in 2010. I know we've covered it a bit before, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive on Fulham really throughout the decade in there and that will be on its usual home in the podcast feed be it Acast, Spotify, Apple or Amazon wherever you get your podcasts and that will be dropping 5am every Wednesday morning of course the last time we did a Noise Nostalgia podcast we didn't have a Patreon page but now we do you can follow three podcasts every week football manager content gaming content as well and that is 350 days a year content and if you would like to subscribe to that content that is just a monthly donation of three pounds and of course we are slowly working towards seven days a week on youtube for what if scenarios so stick around in september for that one and of course that will always remain free until next week and if you can catch us on youtube or on patreon see you then Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.